In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the 22nd Sunday after Trinity. We have one more Sunday for this season. Uh, Next Sunday will be Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of this season. And then the following week will be Advent. So we're in the end portion of St. Luke's Gospel. We've nearly reached the end. This is just before he is arrested and crucified. He's already entered into Jerusalem. And he's been preaching in the temple precincts. And while there, somebody points out the beauty of the temple and how it's adorned. And of course, the creator of the universe is not impressed with interior decorating or architecture. He's not impressed with great clothes or furnishings. He's impressed with the beauty of holiness that resides in the hearts of his people and in their desire to do good. And so when they talk about the beauty of the temple, he says, that will be destroyed. All that you see around you will be washed away. And what remains is the heart and its life with God, its creator. Jesus is foretelling the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. He's foretelling the trampling of Judea, the end of this region known as Judea and of the life of the Jews as they knew it there in that region. He's also foretelling the sufferings and persecutions of the church in those first couple of centuries and even till today. He's foretelling the fall of Rome, of the Roman Empire, and of all of the sufferings that Christians have experienced. So Christian time is not linear. It's not like the modern world where we think we're going just forward progressively. It's not pagan where there's the understanding of a circular time where we're trapped in fate or we're trapped in in some kind of a destiny that we can't escape. But rather Christian time is a spiral where there is a repetition of patterns while moving forward according to our participation. So we're not trapped by fate. We have participation that God invites us into. We affect the world around us while we repeat these cycles of being taken into captivity and being freed. The building up of the church and its persecution. The raising up of a temple and its destruction. It's just a few years after Christ dies and is resurrected in 33 AD that the temple itself is completely destroyed along with all the city of Jerusalem. The Romans come in, the Roman governor and a general war leader, Titus, goes into the Temple Mount. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He looks around it. He puts a Roman statue up. And then they demolish not only that great and holy temple that had been standing for a thousand years, but they destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. So much that the historian Josephus says some centuries later that if you were to go to Jerusalem, you would not recognize that it had ever been inhabited as a city. The Romans continue to use it as an outpost, and they begin to build the city up generations later, so that in about 130 AD, they're again starting to build it as a city with a completely new name, Aegis Capitola. And they start to build a temple to the god Jupiter on the Temple Mount. 
And the Jews in the region are so distraught, they're so upset by this pagan worship on the Temple Mount that they rise up as they've done generations before and the Maccabees and those that come and restored the Temple uh, after the Babylonian exile. Again, this repetition of this cycle of history that they rise up in revolt and they're laid by a uh, Jewish leader by the name of Bar Kokbar. And Bar Kokhbar raises them up as a great and mighty host and they fight Rome. And at this point, Rome decides that they're done fighting with the Jews. They've seen it happen time and again. They're going to completely remove the Jews from Judea. They've issued a decree saying there will be no more Jews in Judea. And they wipe the name Judea from the map and start to refer to that region as Syria-Palestina. And so the first time that it gets called Palestine here in about 130 A.D., They enact a program that you would call a genocide, killing hundreds of thousands of Jews. And many Christians get caught up in this as well because of their shared uh, horror at uh, the pagan worship that's happening in the holy city, Jerusalem. So you can see uh, the, the terror and the upset that Christians and Jews both in this region would experience due to the harshness of the terror that was uh, brought upon them by the Romans. And you can see that Jesus is warning them and preparing them that this kind of terror is going to come about. He's also, of course, talking about the terror that we experience again throughout Christian history. And he's talking about the preparation for the end times. But again, he doesn't give a calendar date. He's not saying you've got this many months or years. He's not saying that I'm going to come again at this time and place. That's not his point. His point is for us to understand that we will suffer in this world and that he is with us to the end. And that in that suffering, there is a specific attitude that we're supposed to have. We're not supposed to be like other people that look at the state of the news and the world and become terrified and become fearful. Our job is not to respond to fear of the world, but to the fear of God. And we're not supposed to be busybodies, busying ourselves with with other people's work, but we're supposed to be focused upon the Lord. And so Jesus establishes for us this attitude and this mindset that we're supposed to have as we face persecution and danger. He says, do not be terrified, do not worry, be focused upon the Lord and upon his business. And, and the fear that we're supposed to have is a fear of the consequences of living in sin or having an attitude or a heart that's turned against God. That's what Malachi warns us of here in his book. The prophet Malachi is speaking about 500 years before Christ, and he's in another one of those cycles of the temple being um, being desecrated in the Babylonian exile and then restored under Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi is living in that time of temple restoration. So they've come back from exile. They've once again started to worship in the temple at this time. But Malachi, like so many of the prophets, is recognizing that though the form, the function of religious worship is there, the hearts of the people have not been turned to God. So the outward signs are there, but the inward attitude of grace is not. And Malachi indicates for us two different kinds of people. He says there's arrogant people that trust in themselves, and then there's fearful people who fear the Lord. 
Now, sometimes we've heard preachers say that God doesn't really want us to fear Him, that we're supposed to reverence Him. Of course, we're supposed to reverence God, but we're also supposed to be afraid, just as we are of any natural consequence of sin. We're supposed to be afraid every time we go to the street and we go to step off the curb, right? We are supposed to have a good and healthy fear. We need to have enough fear to recognize that we need to look both ways before we cross the street. Now, for some people, that fear can get out of hand and they get so much anxiety and worry that they can't even cross the street or they're not able even to get into a car to to drive. Right? So that fear can take over our lives. But if we've got no fear at all, we don't have the impetus to secure for ourselves safety. We have to be afraid of the consequences of our actions. There are natural consequences to sin. And this is the fear of God that we're supposed to have. He's organized the world. He's set the planets in motion. He's built us so that when we sin, when we turn away from Him, there's a consequence to that. A natural consequence that is suffered. And so he says, the arrogant don't recognize it, they're full of themselves, but the fearful then will be moving towards righteous. And he indicates the fearful in several ways. He says that they're righteous, and he says that they serve God. So the fearful live righteous lives in service of God. The arrogant, he says, are wicked and don't serve God. They're wicked and they don't serve God. And so these are the two categories of people that he describes. And he's describing an attitude of the heart that's going to be changed. And he summarizes it in this really beautiful way, doesn't he? The, the righteous that serve the Lord, that are afraid of the consequences of sin, have their hearts changed so that they turn to their children. Isn't that beautiful? The heart of the father turns to the son. What does he mean by that? He means that the father will have compassion for the son that we would turn to one another in filial duty and love, in compassion. And that the Son will turn to the Father in the same way. The Son will have compassion for the Father. These are the relationships that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have compassion for one another. And what arrogance does, a lack of fear does, is it wipes away compassion. If we're arrogant and boastful, we're not able to have compassion for one another. But when we're fearful and we recognize those consequences and we serve God, it enables us to understand that we too need mercy, we too need forgiveness, we too need help, and we're able to have compassion for those around us that also need that help. He promises to send the prophet Elijah back. And of course, uh, some people understand this literally. They think that the prophet Elijah somehow is going to rise from the dead or descend from heaven. This is not what's being talked about at all. He's saying that in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, we know, comes in that same spirit to warn the people, to warn the fathers back to their sons. And this is exactly what John the Baptist does. He warns them to repent and to turn back to God. This is the same exact message that St. Paul has. St. Paul also says that there are two kinds of people. Uh, The two kinds of people that St. Paul indicates are idlers. (laughs) Idlers and people who do their jobs. That's a great description, isn't it? Idlers and people that do their jobs. I've been an idler. I know what that's like, right? What's he talking about here? He's talking about people that think that talking about doing something is the same thing as doing it, right? Because he indicates an idler as somebody who busy themselves, right, with other people's business. And what does he call them? He calls them this great name. 
busybodies. Right? I've been a busybody. What does that mean? It means I'm talking about something, and I think that talking about doing the right thing is the same thing as doing the right thing. Right? That saying that I'm going to do something is the same as actually doing it. That's what a busybody does. They get into other people's business and they think saying you should do this or you should do that or I've done this or I've done that is the same as actually doing it. The righteous actually do it. They don't need to talk about it. They live by example. If you want to see how it's done, watch how I do it. That's it. So he indicates the people that talk the talk and people that walk the walk. He says, if you're going to have to choose between the two, choose how you walk, right? And then he talks about them earning a living. And for us, this may be a little bit difficult to understand because uh, we uh, don't depend upon our local church as much as the ancient Christians would have done. Ancient Christians, when they're living in a culture of, uh, of slavery, of indentured service, of landowners and then laborers, uh, a place where if you left your local synagogue or you left your local pagan family, they might cut you off completely and you wouldn't have any kind of support for yourself, the church ends up providing a lot of support for people. And there's a lot of shared um, goods, right? The church is giving to one another and supporting one another because people that have chosen Christ are often uh, restricted or cut away from their families. And he's saying that in this situation, everybody has a job to do. So we're in a different situation, but the same result is here. The health of Jesus the Good Shepherd depends upon all of us doing our work, right? And it's not just good for me to do the work, right? It's good for us and vice versa. So we don't do the work in the church just so that it's good for us, but for one another. And we do the work for one another because it's also good for what it does for our spirits. There are so many opportunities to do work at Jesus the Good Shepherd. We have to wash uh, linens, we have to vacuum floors, we have to scrub toilets, we have to fold bulletins, we have to greet people in ministry, we have to bear the cup. There's job after job, and there's jobs that I don't know about that need to be done here because there's people that have been given the task to do it, and they're not doing it yet. So there's jobs that need to be done here that I don't even know about because those people haven't come forward to do that work. And there isn't any job that's above any of us. I've washed toilets at Jesus the Good Shepherd. I plan on washing them again. I'm not as good at it as Miranda or Judith. These are our two expert uh, toilet washers. So when you all go into the bathrooms, know that it's an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old that are making it clean for you with the help of some other people. But they do it with love and they do it with enthusiasm. And that's the spirit in which we too are supposed to serve is with that enthusiasm of serving one another and helping the body. And so when we do that work, we are able to reduce our own arrogance, recognize our place in the community, know that our service towards God and one another will soften our hearts so that we're able to have compassion and hear the Lord to do his work. Jesus says two things at the end of this gospel that sound totally contradictory, don't they? Did you notice that? Did you come to the end of that gospel and say, hey, wait a minute. Which one is it? Because first he says, they're going to put you to death, right? And then he says, none of your hair, a hair of your head will perish. Well, which is it? A reminder is in, what is the gospel? 
Why did Jesus come in the first place? Did he come so that none of us will ever have a hangnail? So that none of us ever have something bad happen to us? So that nobody gets sick? So that nobody ever dies? Uh, that this flesh remains for forever and that we all die at 80 or 100 or 120? Is that the gospel message? No. The gospel message is that we live in eternity through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and new bodies, resurrected bodies. These bodies wash away. The fathers call it falling asleep in the Lord. It's not about these bodies. It's about those eternal bodies. And this is what he says we need to be afraid of losing. We need to be afraid of losing eternity. Not in having danger in this world. He says you will have danger, but don't be afraid and don't worry about it and fret about it. I'm going to be with you to the end. And he says your endurance will gain your lives. Why does he have to say your endurance will gain your lives? Endurance implies what? That it's going to be hard. That it's going to be long. That it's going to be tiring. That we're going to have to build our energies and encourage one another. If we're going to endure to the end through this world, we are going to have difficulties that we have to prepare for and be aware of. And how do we do that? We endure by being focused upon the Lord, fearing Him, acknowledging our own shortcomings, waiting to hear His voice and to get His direction so that we can serve Him in obedience and in righteousness. And the promise that Malachi gives us is extraordinary. He says, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. For you who fear the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. May we experience that healing of the Most High God this day and forevermore. Amen.